Okay, with that, why don't you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to get going here. I love fruity candy. Red vines, Sour Patch Kids, gummy bears, lemon heads, Skittles, Laffy Taffy. Do any of you like those kind of candies? Raise your hand. Keep them up. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Here you go, Matt. Oh, 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 that was a terrible throw. Hand that back to Matt, would you? Let's see. Over here, over here, over here. Here you go, David. Hope, heads up. Oh, he's good. Oh, still got those hands. All right. My wife, however, loves chocolate. Peppermint patties, dark chocolate. Okay, so Shane, in order to get people to worship more, we just need to hand out candy before. Jesus! Yes! Right? All right. Reese's Pieces peanut butter cups. Who likes those? All right. Oh, heads up, heads up. Oh. <laughs> over here, over here. I need one of those shirt things that just blows the... There we go. Oh, oh, nice catch, nice catch. Peppermint patty, there we go. Oh, oh, <laughs> snagged it. Thou shalt not steal. Um, so we have very different tastes in candies. Can you believe that we can stay married? Right? Well, some of you are laughing because, of course, we can stay married if that's the only difference we have in opinion. It's not. We have many different opinions between Kelly and I. But the reality is, is that, quite honestly, I've seen in a number of cases in marriage counseling and even premarital counseling that small things like this, if it's an unhealthy and immature relationship, actually can lead to division and dissension in a bad way, can lead to a breaking of the relationship. How is it possible that in one relationship, it can lead to a diversity that's good and, in fact, unifying. Kelly and I love sitting down with a good piece of candy, watching a movie together, totally different candies, because then we don't have to share, right? It's awesome. She knows that if she wants to get a candy that I won't eat, she, she gets the little Thin Mints or whatever they're called, right? But while, meanwhile, in another relationship, it adds to massive distrust and dysfunction and potentially even a break in relationship. And I think this is a pertinent question to ask in the church today because uh, back when the church started, there was one church. For a thousand years, there was one church. And then in 1056, there was a schism and it turned into two. And somehow, someway, in the last 200 years, we've gone from two churches, or three, Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox, into tens of thousands of autonomous and independent denominations and churches. It's a question that needs to be asked. Because in contrast to this idea, we're going to continue looking at what Paul states is necessary for a church to be healthy. That's really what the book of Ephesians is about, is uniting all things under the headship of Christ and using the church to display that unity. And so today, we're going to continue in this first mark of health that we've talked about, Jesus at the core. Jesus at the core is the essential characteristic of the Christian church. But we'll also see today how we can disagree on secondary issues in a very healthy way. And to do it, we're going to use a topic that is here in chapter 1 that has been debated for a long time, for hundreds of years, called predestination. Everybody say predestination. Predestination. But just to remind ourselves where we're at, we're going to start with this idea, Jesus at the core, by reading again verses 3 through 14. So if you'll join me there in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." We went through the first uh, 10 verses there, or 3 through 10, last week, and we talked about those blessings. And Patrick, next week, is going to take us through verses 11 through 14 to share the rest of the blessings. But I wanted to pause this week because this idea of predestination is huge. And what we want to start with is we want to look at this and understand that predestination is not the core of this section. Jesus is at the core. As I noted last week, these verses in the original Greek form one long sentence— Paul would have gotten marked down in his first grade English class, right? One long sentence. Uh, 202 words, 15 times Jesus is noted, and 11 times he uses the phrase, in Christ. Christ is the center and the core of this section of text. Jesus is at the core of all of Paul's thought. And that is because Jesus is the core of the Bible. This whole book that we hold in our hands is about him, It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. The Old Testament looks forward to him as the hope of mankind. The Gospels tell of his life, his death, his resurrection. Acts speaks of the church that is formed out of his ministry and its mission to take the good news of the Gospel to the ends of the earth. The letters of the New Testament speak of that Gospel and require from the church a response that shows they are transformed in his image. And Revelation speaks to us of the day he will return to restore all things and set up his kingdom on this earth. The whole Bible is about Jesus the Christ. And this is core. If the Jesus of the Bible, the second member of the Trinity, is not preached, then there is no true church. If he is not believed upon and followed, then there is no true Christian. You and I were dead in sin When the Father sent his Son to die for our sins through his crucifixion on the cross and he served the sacrifice that paid for our sins so that we don't have to suffer the wrath of God but we receive forgiveness from him. And then he resurrected three days later to show that sin, show that sin and death had been defeated. And in doing so, he initiated God's kingdom of which we are now a part He's asking you and inviting you, if you are not a believer and not a follower of him, to be part of that kingdom. He's calling you into it. If you have not allowed this gift of forgiveness and salvation to draw you to him, 
And you're here today as a person who hasn't really followed God, or maybe you're a person who's questioned or wondered. Jesus Christ is reaching out to you and calling you to him here today. Today is the day for you to respond and to submit your life to him, to accept his free gift of grace. And this truth is the core of all that we believe. Without this, there is nothing else. It's the core of this church. And that is why, as our leadership team attempted to put together a statement of faith for our church, we did our best to form a statement that captures the fact that Jesus is at the core of the church. And we intentionally left out a ton of secondary items so that we could give the most latitude to people within our church to agree on the primary doctrines and disagree on the secondary doctrines, to major on the majors, if you will. And this idea of what it is to be a church that majors on the majors and doesn't major on the minors was put wonderfully by an old, undistinguished German Lutheran theologian named Rupertus Meldenius. I won't have you pronounce that. I was practicing it all night. Rupertus Meldenius. And here's what he said. You may have heard of this before. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, we don't use that word charity so much in the same sense anymore. It actually comes from, uh, this word is what we use more often, in all things, love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. A church that understands this truth and puts it to play with Jesus at the core is a healthy church. But let me digress for a minute and explain what is meant by essentials and non-essentials, or primary and secondary doctrines, because some of you may not be familiar with that. And in so doing, I want to describe for you what it looks like to have, in a healthy church, healthy disagreement. I'm going to write this down. We're going to look at healthy disagreement within the church. Healthy disagreement within the church. Now, anyone who has gotten the blessing and the curse of being in the pulpit as a teaching pastor or a lead pastor knows that this is almost impossible to find. Healthy disagreement in the church, right? It is a tough thing to find because we are humans being slowly transformed into the image of Christ. And so what we have to do is we have to work at doing this because we're not born with this ability. Have you ever seen your children or your friend's kids have healthy disagreement? Oh, may I please have that Lego? Oh, thank you so much. You have five minutes to use it. Oh, thank you, right? That's not what happens in my house. No, I wanted it. No, I wanted it. Well, you're wrong, right? Okay, and then we pull them over and we train them in a new way and then they kind of start to figure it out. And hopefully by 38 or something, they'll figure it out, right? Okay. Well, first we have to understand that a primary doctrine is one that defines Christianity, In other words, without it, we would not be biblical followers of Jesus. And what I want you to do in terms of thinking about what is necessary as an essential doctrine, I want you to think in terms of maps. Imagine that we're drawing a map of Oregon, and we have to draw certain pieces of it. Now, if you're a non-artist like me, you're going to draw it in a way that's kind of not great, right? This is my first attempt at drawing a map of Oregon. Is Is that Oregon? Well, I, mm, I don't know. I don't think so because it doesn't have the essential pieces to it. Well, it's not, it's not an oval. It's kind of more like this, right? Is, that's kind of, no, that's Wyoming, Hans. Oh, oh, okay, right? Well, so what do we need to do in order to alter it? Well, essential to the outline of Oregon is maybe a little, little bump on the top left there, and maybe it curves out on the right, and maybe it's curved a little bit. So I actually did this freehand, right? Come on, G- give me some, right? Okay, okay. 
Come on, artists, right? That's, that's not too bad, right? Okay, I did that freehand. Now, that kind of looks like Oregon, right? Now, if we get really down to it, this is what Oregon looks like, right? But we know that it doesn't look like this because there are essential pieces that are necessary. Now, I could tell this is Oregon. This is an outline I have on one of my hats. But somebody else might say, no, that's not Oregon. It needs more information. It has to look like this. Okay? Now, I have lived in Oregon my entire life, and I didn't even know we had a city named French Glen. (laughs) And what is the Harney Basin? Some of you are like, Hans, you don't go hunting enough. True. Okay? Uh, Does the Harney Basin and Malheur Lake and French Glen have to be there in order for it to be Oregon? Do the Blue Mountains have to be there, but no coastal range and no Cascade range? See, for this person, those were essential, but for me, I'd need to have the coastal range and the... You see how we can get into division over what's essential? But the reality is, is what's truly essential for somebody to go, oh, that's Oregon, is this. And so our job, when we think about Christianity, is to use this same idea. If we take it and apply it to Christianity, which characteristics are needed? Contemporary worship music versus organ music. Sprinkling baptism versus... Dunking. Tongues or no tongues? A church led by a board or a church led by an eldership? If those become our essentials, we turn into this. Because what really is required is things like the Trinity. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Baptism and communion. The authority of the Bible. And the necessity of the church. These are essentials. So we must do our best to keep our essentials small in number so that we have the most unity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. So how do we figure out which are those essentials? One person might think French Glen is necessary for a map of Oregon, and one person might not. How do we sit down and decide? Well, each church body, in my opinion, and each individual needs to go through an exercise in their own life to prioritize doctrines. And my suggestion would be to start with Scripture and look at the doctrines found in church history and then categorize them. And the way we categorize them has been put best by one of my professors, Gary Brashears. I love how he does this. It's called Die, Divide, Debate, and Decide. Deciding on the essentials is to take a doctrine or something and put it into this uh, paradigm, basically. Okay, so having screens or having song sheets, which section should that fall into? Hopefully decide. It's like not that big of a deal. But let's talk about die. What would die be? Well, if someone came in this church and threatened me with death and said, denounce Jesus as God or die, well, I would have to say, go for it. I'll see you on the other side. I would die for that. That is essential. Now, this is where I differ from a lot of Christians. I think there are relatively few things that we must die over. In fact, that is how we tried to write our statement of faith as a leadership, is those things for which we will die. The next section is divide. Again, we should strive to have as small of a list as possible here. Unfortunately, it seems to me in my experience as a Christian and a pastor is that when I look at what most people are willing to divide over, the list is far too large. And I think it has done harm to the witness of the church. The world does not believe that we have any unique power or reconciliation because we divide over everything. 
But look at where Paul says dissensions and divisions come from, guys. Look at the Word of God. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, which the core word in the Greek means making disunity, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In the American mindset, we've gone, oh yeah, we're not supposed to do a few of these, but some of these I'll keep. And dissensions and divisions, man, that's just being an American, right? That's what we do. We're autonomous. But guys, read what this says. Dissensions and divisions come from the flesh, not the spirit. My idealistic self, and I know I'm an idealist, says that we need to be extremely careful to cause division and disunity over anything that is really not a die issue. Most should fall into things we enjoyably debate or decide for. I love going to seminary for this reason. I've got three profs that disagree on everything. And they go out to lunch and love each other, and the best thing is to sit down and watch them debate doctrine and then hug each other at the end. It's like, this is so cool. This is what we're supposed to do. Part of the vision of our leadership for this church is that we provide such a picture of unity and love to the city of Salem and Kaiser and the surrounding areas that the world looks at us and says, there is something different about the Jesus that you preach. How do I get to know that Jesus, the Jesus that brings unity? Because, guys, what's the other option? The other option is that everything becomes a secondary issue and everything divides the church. Every person's individual consumeristic tastes and relational dysfunction, and emotional pathology, and family baggage suddenly becomes the arbiter of truth and the deciding vote on whether or not we are going to live in unity. Part of what we as a leadership team are trying to do is to make it very hard for that kind of a consumeristic mindset to flourish in this church. In fact, we're trying to snuff it out completely. We don't want to develop people who ask, how is this church meeting my needs? We want to develop people who ask, how can I serve my brothers and sisters to better glorify and reflect Christ? We want people to look at the church not just as a spiritual consumer product that meets their tastes, but as a family and a body made up of many members who serve and commit to and love one another. You see, a body that is made up of cells or parts that consume each other That's the definition of cancerous growth. And it's a sick and dying body. But a healthy body is one in which all the parts add to the whole and serve one another. So I was asked once when I was discussing this topic, well, what happens when I don't agree with what you or the elders teach, Hans? And my first response was, join the club. Join the club. And that means including myself. Guys, there are times where I'll say something And it just kind of comes out, and then I'll go back and listen to the teaching, and I'll go, oh, where did that come from? i got to get that off the teaching, right? The Bible says that if a man can perfectly control his tongue, then he's a perfect man. Well, you don't have a perfect man as your pastor, nor as elders or leadership. And if I thought I was teaching 100% perfect doctrine every time, you should all fire me for being out of touch with reality and a giant narcissist. When I teach, or Patrick teaches, or Tyler, or anyone else teaches— We thank you for realizing that we are imperfect men trying to teach the perfect word of God. And we thank you for your grace. We should all be people that grow and change and adjust as we learn and refine our theology. 
We may shift on secondary issues because we don't ever want to be leaders who say, I am who I am and I will never change. Because then we would not be modeling for you what it is to be a disciple. A disciple is one who learns and is taught. One of the main reasons that I go to seminary is to learn and refine my theology so that I can be the best possible pastor, teacher, and counselor I can for you. And we should all always be tweaking and refining our theology so that it falls in line with Scripture. When Scripture is presented to us that counters what we believe, the job of a Christian is to not fight it but to say, I submit. But back to the question, what happens when we disagree? Well, what we use in leadership is what I call the spectrum of disagreement. And this is a little bit hard to see, but we'll put it online so you can uh, read it on your own as part of the slides. There's levels of agreement. If we're all in agreement, we move forward. If uh, they have no preference and they're neutral, we agree to move forward. If, if there's some reservation, but they, they agree and they can see the point of it, we move forward. But then comes what happens when we disagree. What I ask our leadership to do and what you should do is you should state why you disagree. I disagree based on personal opinion or I disagree based on experience, okay? If either of those two things is the case, then what we do is we state our concern and reasoning and we discuss if biblical backing is present to overrule personal opinion or personal experience. If it is, then we move forward based upon scripture. Number six there, I disagree based on biblical precedent. Well, we as a leadership team then bow to that biblical precedent. If something's autonomous, if we can argue both sides, a great example is believer's baptism versus pedo or child baptism. I could stand up here for both sides and I could argue both of them perfectly from Scripture. I see why both sides do it. We as a church have chosen one just because that's where we've kind of landed is the way to move forward. But for example, if you come to us in your, your membership interview and you say, well, I was, I was baptized as an infant and I feel like that's my baptism. Patrick and I will ask you a few questions, but we'll probably go with it. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. Because we want to re- leave room for latitude on that one. It's a secondary issue. And if we come to a place where we've stated scripture and the person is going, I just can't be part of it, not because of biblical backing, but I just don't want to, uh, then that's where we say, okay, we've got to part ways, unfortunately. And this is what we use in the midst of our leadership team. And I would suggest we do it uh, as a group as well. What I find that happens is that there is a point where people are no longer willing to decide based on Scripture. Usually when this happens, it's because of emotional weight that does not allow them to do so. For example... If I'm asking them to alter their theology, but someone who's very important to them has a different theology than what I'm teaching, they would then in their minds decide that, well, I, had, I would have to label that person who's important to me as wrong, and I can't do that, so I have to refuse the theology that Hans is teaching. Or if maybe you're older, you'd have to admit that what you taught your children might have been an errant view, and that's too much emotional weight. Or maybe a new theology asks them to give up something that is an idol like autonomy or independence or a feeling of spiritual superiority. What it seems to me in my experience as a pastor is that division occurs not usually theologically, but emotionally. That's when division usually occurs. Because a church should be made up of people that are willing to bow to what the word says. And if it's ambiguous, we leave it as ambiguous. Look how badly Paul wants us to agree even when our emotions don't feel like it. Look at this. This is from 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. 
Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Does he want conformity? No. One of the big things that Paul preaches is diversity. He says, you guys are all different. You got different giftings, different backgrounds. You speak different languages. He's not saying conform and submit, right? No, he's saying agree in what's important and that there be no divisions among you. What would he say to the church today? 30,000 different denominations and churches. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, or I like it when Shane leads worship, or I like it when Michael leads worship. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See how he snuck something in there? Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. When two women in the church at Philippi couldn't agree, Evodia and Syntyche, he said to them this, in front of the entire church, (laughs) because Philippians would have been read in front of the entire church. Imagine being these two women. Awkward. Paul said, I entreat Evodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Can you imagine if I got up here and was like, so, uh, Fred has told me that uh, John and Jake can't get along. Hey, John and Jake, agree. Right? Well, that would be grounds for lawsuit and defamation of character in the United States, right? In fact, for most of the letters of Paul, the point was to get the Gentiles and Jews to agree together in the midst of their differences. They were always going to be very different people, but he said agree. And this would show the world that the plan of God to unite all things in himself was actually proving true. And that God was therefore true. And so the need to agree for the sake of the glory of God and therefore have healthy disagreement for the good of the church is a witness in and of itself of God's powerful gospel that's so important that we must have, just like healthy disagreement, we must also have healthy decision-making in the church. Healthy decision-making in the church. What our leadership commits to you is that we will constantly be in the Word. If you ever want to come and sit down at one of our leadership meetings, you will see us have our Bibles open, debating Scripture, and talking through it. All 20 of us as leadership and staff. Because we want to lead you as close to Christ's will as possible. The interesting fact, though, is that Christ will not just hold our leadership and staff accountable alone for the teaching and doctrine and gospel proclamation of this church, The word says he will hold those that truly belong to one another within this church accountable. For those that desire to be members of this church, you are partnering with the leadership to take on that responsibility. Turn with me from Ephesians backwards to Galatians chapter 1, and I'll show you what I mean. Galatians 1, starting in verse 6. And while we're at verse 6, also just look back really quickly to verse 2 and look at who this letter is written to. To all the brothers, uh, from all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Okay, so he's speaking to the entire church of Galatia. Not just the leaders, not just the staff, right? They didn't have staff back then. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Who's Paul holding accountable here? Just the leadership? No, the entire church. And so it is imperative that all we who are members of the body of mission take on that responsibility and become Bible students, not just for our own personal devotion, but for the protection of the gospel proclamation coming forth from mission. Well, how do we take on that responsibility in a way that is right and safe? How do I even study the Bible, you might say, in in that way? Well, looking at the history of the church time and time again, we see that errant theologies arise from groups that with well-meaning attitudes sat down to, quote-unquote, study the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses. You could even say Seventh-day Adventists. Numerous cults. They all started with this idea of a Bible study with no authority or covering. And they quickly turned into heresy. So how do we not fall into the same trap? Well, we have to look at the methods of how to study the Bible. And don't worry, I'll get back to the topic of predestination in a second. But let's look at how we make decisions with Bible study. There are different methods of studying the Bible. The first one I want you to to write down is this. Deductive Bible studying. Deductive Bible study. This is what most people use when they study the Bible, and they don't even know it. This is where we have a trusted source or a group of trusted sources, usually a tribe of theological thought that we look to for truth. One of my professors calls this going to your John, okay? Going to your John. I like John Calvin. Well, I believe in John Wesley. Well, I trust John MacArthur. Well, I trust John Corson, okay? And just so you name, know, my name in German is Hans, which means John in English, okay? For some of you, it's mom and dad. I can't go against the theological thought of mom and dad. For others of you, it's a respected mentor who loved you well and taught you a lot, so they have to be right because they were so loving. And for some of you, unfortunately for you, it's me, right? But what's the problem with this method? Well, your trust is going into an individual or a tribe of broken and errant people. And the problem is is that you become one-sided in your study because those sources are probably wrong sometimes. Amen? That's an amen, right? Amen. amen. They're probably wrong sometimes. And it also makes my faith dependent upon them. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to bring theology to people and they bust out their John Corson commentary and say, well, you're wrong because John Corson says so. Well, you know what? John Corson's probably wrong sometimes. Just like I'm wrong sometimes. It's easy to do, though, because we only have one teacher and it becomes almost cult-like as we are only ever told to listen to that one tribe or one person. I would say this is a terrible way of studying the Bible. Here's the second one, and this one is good. Inductive Bible study, me and the Bible. This is where you or a group of people sit down and simply, again, quote-unquote, read the Bible. You ask questions like where, when, why. And as good Protestants, we all want to state this is how we read the Bible, and this is great. I want you guys to know this. This is good. This is what we should do because it brings ownership And to an extent, it is you, the Word, and the Spirit, and we should do this. We should spend time personally in the Word. But here is a problem. 
What is your safety net that keeps you from falling off into a wrong understanding? Okay? This has now happened to me, and I've also heard it happen to another pastor. Gentleman meets with you and says, hey, I've got a problem with lust. I was reading that Jesus says that you should cut off your hand in order to get into heaven. I think I'm going to castrate myself. Is that a wrong interpretation of that verse? Amen it is. (laughs) Preemptively, gentlemen, not a good idea. Okay? Well, how did they come up with that? Well, they read the scripture. Well, they didn't read it correctly. Now, you might say, well, that person was nuts. No, they weren't. I can't even tell you the number of wrong views of Scripture I've heard. Secondly, as finite human beings, I've found that the Spirit rarely gives us miraculous understanding of things like cultural and grammatical and historical context. And so people, again, misread the Bible. What was very obvious to the original readers is not to us because of our cultural differences. And third, it's really hard to get past what mom and dad originally taught us. What we're taught first is what sticks And everyone else who comes afterwards has to disprove that before they can prove something else. This is why, quite honestly, it absolutely stinks to be a church planner because I'm fighting against your mom and dad. I'm fighting against every pastor you've ever had. I'm fighting against your young life directors, your crew directors. I'm fighting against everybody, okay? And so if I bring you a theology, you have to go, well, wait a minute. All those people told me these ideas, and Hans, you're wrong. Well, could it be that they were wrong? Sometimes, probably, maybe. Not all the time. Maybe I'm wrong. Reading the Bible only in this way keeps us from challenging our paradigms and we refuse to stretch and grow. We need inductive Bible study. Hear me, we need this. Don't get rid of it. But we also need to be stretched. And this is why Jesus, Paul, Peter, and the other writers of the inspired word of God said, you need teachers to teach you. And so I would suggest to you that the best way that we can make decisions from the Bible and read it is what's called retroductive study. Retroductive study. This is where we examine all the various opinions on a given text through the filter of the Bible. So it's taking expert thoughts from all different opinions and reading the Bible. If you run into somebody who says, well, read this book, but not this book, because this book is crazy, guys, that's a major problem. Oh, you got to read John MacArthur, but stay away from N.T. Wright. What? These are both geniuses of Scripture, and they're probably both wrong in some capacity. Read them both. Read them both. And so this is where you investigate through inductive Bible study the various proposed answers to hard questions. Now here's the problem with this. In order to do it, you have to suspend your judgment and hold things loosely until you can figure them out. Now this takes time and it can be very confusing, but that is why we hold these issues as secondary and open-handed while we study them and listen. Let me show you how this works in a Bible passage that is usually taken to back up just inductive Bible study. Just me and the Bible. Everybody, anybody ever heard of the Bereans? Raise your hand. Okay, the Bereans. Study like the Bereans. Just read the Bible for yourself. Look at what the Bereans actually did. Acts 17.11. Now these Jews, the Bereans, were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if things, these things were so. We take that second part, examining the scriptures. See, be like the Bereans, but we skip over what was right before it. They received the word. See how they were taught first and then took what was taught and went and ran it through the filter of scripture? They didn't just go out and sit on a desert island with their Bible and the Holy Spirit and decide what scripture meant. They took it from the apostles who taught them. And see, true biblical wisdom has to take into account church tradition that comes on down from the apostolic times. 
So what we should be as believers is we should be unified in Christ to meet and sit down and say firsthand, face to face. See, guys, I, I got to tell you, I love your questions when they come across as emails. But man, if you're not willing to sit down with me and go through scripture and you want to debate me over email, it's a waste of time and I will stop doing it. If you want to sit down with me face to face and go through scripture, I would love to do that. Because then you can say, I believe this. And I can say, well, I believe this. And Bibles in hand, we can look at biblical data. I got a chance to do this uh, with a brother recently and one of the, the leaders from their, their community group. It was awesome. We got to look at the scripture and talk about it and come to some agreement. It was really cool. And this is what the church should do if we're healthy. Let's take a look at this in action. Go with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, the situation is that there are Jews coming into the Gentile Christians and saying, um, you've got to be circumcised in order to be a true Christian. And so the council of Jerusalem and the whole church in Jerusalem gets together. Um, and so verse 1 there sets the stage. But some men came down, this is 15.1 in Acts, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, that's what was going on. So Paul and Barnabas and, and a bunch of people, they have this debate, and the elders ask the question. And if you go through and read, you're going to see that Peter stands up and says, I believe. And you're going to see that James stands up and says, I believe. And you're going to see the Pharisees stand up and say, I believe. And they did this in a healthy way. And there was probably some heat and some tension in the room, right? But look at verse 22. Look at what it says. Then, after all of this, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with who? The whole church. Does that mean visitors that showed up on a Sunday? Does that mean people that aren't really believers that are hanging out with the Christians? No. The church, the people that were on the roll, the people that they knew were believers, that bought into what Christ was doing. The whole church. To choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Now, guys, that doesn't mean that they got into a Honda and drove there, Okay. It means they came to one mind, they agreed. Even though there was dissension and division in a sense, they resolved it and reconciled in order to move forward with the truth of what they were going to do. This is what the whole church deciding in a healthy way looks like. This is the church led by the Spirit through the members of the body. One person didn't stand up and say, I have the corner on truth because I have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit told me. No, all of them said, my reckoning by the Holy Spirit from Scripture is I believe this. And everybody figured it out and they talked about it and the Holy Spirit brought unity. A spirit that just breeds dissension and tells this person one thing and this person another thing and makes them split churches, guys, that is not the spirit. That's the spirit of Satan. You know how I know that? Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And that truth makes him state what is above that. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is that? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the what? Unity. Unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so this is what a healthy church does. They disagree. They have latitude on the secondary issues. There are some of you that are going to disagree on secondary issues. And I love you for it. And I hope you stay. Hans, you don't talk about tongues. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you can't go in the back and speak in tongues. Just have an interpreter according to Scripture. Because we submit to Scripture. I love tongues. Do it according to Scripture and we got no problems. You do it against Scripture, we got problems. Pedo baptism, believer's baptism, awesome. Have differing opinions. Love one another. Song sheets or screen? Well, song sheets are right, but the rest of you are okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> because when we started the church, guess what I said? We will never do song sheets. And then we did a screen, and it was like, wow, this is a really good idea. Okay? Because that's not even in Scripture. The book of Uliah says, do screens. No. Huh? <laughs> So when we, have an, when we have a disagreement, like the topic of predestination, here's what happens in the church. I believe God meticulously controls and predestines every single person who ever believed. And another, another person says, well, I think that God uses free will a little bit. Well, we got to split churches. No, guys, goodness gracious, why? Why? The first one's talking about Jesus. The second one's talking about Jesus. And they're the Jesus of the Trinity that died on the cross and rose again. Why can't we be unified? And so in Ephesians 1... If you go back and look at it there, in verses 3 through 7 and in verses 11 through 12, it says very clearly, God predestines us. So when I scheduled out the teachings for Ephesians, I scheduled a week to take on this tough topic of, of theology. And originally, I have to confess to you, I was going to lay out all the various views. I actually started to do this in crew the other night, and I think I made them all go cross-eyed. Okay? <laughs> And I was going to lay it out, and I was going to teach each view and what they meant and why I teach the one I do. And then I started to sit with Patrick, and we've been going through and really trying to understand Ephesians and wrestle with the text and diagram it out and figure out how to best teach you. And what I came to understand about this letter is that Paul was not writing a theological treatise. He wasn't writing to debate. He was doing the exact opposite. What I realized is more pertinent to this letter is what we're discussing today. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. It is absolutely clear that God uses predestination. It says so right here, but the question then becomes, why did Paul say it and what did he mean by it? To one party within the church, it means one thing. To another, it means another. Now, I could give you an eight-hour class. I just sat through one on this very topic. I could give you an eight-hour class on all the various views and there are three men that I greatly respect that sat in front of me for eight hours and debated this. And at the end of it, one of the wisest men in the room stood up and he said, you know what's funny about all this? When you're sitting in a hospital room with someone who just lost their baby in stillbirth, they don't care if a Calvinist or an Arminian is right. And we all kind of went, oh yeah. 
And then the Calvinist stood up and he said, yeah, you know what's funny? I, I hold the theological understanding of Calvinism, but when I'm meeting with somebody who's suffering, I become an Arminian. That there's various variables. There's Satan's will and human's will and God's will, and somehow they go into this big mucky mess, and there's brokenness and sin, and somehow, some way, God is so powerful and sovereign that he works through all the junk to bring about his goodwill. And that's what's so amazing. And I can debate both of these slants and believe them very strongly that they both have merit and everything in between. That God saves anyone, shows his grace whether or not he saves all. I could debate the Arminian view that it's all free will and that God wants all to be saved because quite honestly that's what scripture says. 1 Timothy 2, 3-6 says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, not just limited, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And guys, if you're smart in here and you've debated this before and you've gone through the Calvinistic view, I know how Calvinists fight this. And I know how Arminians back it. But I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of debating Because I think that the purpose of why Paul wrote this had nothing to do with establishing a theology behind God's sovereignty. What I want to focus on today is what we most likely can guess what was Paul's intention. It seems to me that Paul did not write this section of text with the motivation of singing praise to any one thought of theology. The reason I know this is because those theologies weren't even in existence when Paul wrote this. They came centuries later. What I do know Paul was writing against is this. This goddess, Diana, and the other gods and goddesses of the mystery religions of Ephesus taught that a person's fate was sealed by them, and that person had no control, no chance whatsoever. And if you made one slight mistake against those gods, they would destroy you now and in the future. You were absolutely at the whim of the fates and especially the astral powers, the stars, the cosmos that would control your fate. That's where we get horoscopes from. And Paul's letters were written to a given people, a specific time, a specific place with this specific situation. And in his statements, what we do is we gain knowledge and insight and application for our lives today. And so his statement here is not theological at its core. It's actually pastoral. The reason Paul uses the statement predestination and that God chose us is actually not theological. It's pastoral. What he's doing, guys, is he's reassuring the people in Ephesus that are Christians that the God of the Bible doesn't forsake you if you fail, that he doesn't leave you if you make a mistake. There was dissension and division in the church of Ephesus. And Paul was writing them, and he didn't say off the bat, fix it. The first thing he said was, look at the God you serve. The God that loves you and is faithful to his kids. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has predestined us, yeah, to salvation. No, to adoption. What he's saying is that for those that are truly his, his covenant love and relationship will not fail you even if life is being destroyed. I believe what Paul was saying is this. 
And I want to say it to you today. Dear saints, I know that you fear. I know that you fear because of all the hardship you are suffering in the name of Jesus. I know you fear because of the suffering that is happening in your lives because of sickness and brokenness and disease. And you wonder if God is for you or against you. But recognize that God's eternal plan was to unite you to himself. And while it doesn't feel like it right now, know that you are his. And the father does not forsake his kids. You think that the stars and the gods behind them control your fate or some mean God up in the sky who wants to smash you. But the truth is, is that the Father God chose you before the stars ever came into being. He chose you, he loves you, and he will glorify you. That's the point when Paul said you are predestined to adoption. You are predestined according to his purpose to unite all things. You are meant for it. I know that some of you in this church are struggling right now. The church is changing. The church is growing. You might be going through some personal pain, some relational trauma, or maybe life is just beating you up. What I want to assure you today is the same thing Paul assured the church at Ephesus. That God's character of goodness and covenant faithfulness is what never changes. That was Paul's point when he brought up the topic of predestination. Recognize that what you have surrounding you in this church are brothers and sisters that are different from you and may even have very different opinions. But because of the love of Jesus, they're united with you and unified with you. And I want you to know that we love you. And it is in these tough seasons of life, personally and corporately, that we can best show the world how powerful the unifying spirit of Jesus Christ is. That by his power, in our lives, individually and corporately, he causes unity in the essentials, gives liberty in the non-essentials, and helps us all walk in love with one another. The leadership of this church's prayer and hope for us is that we be, can begin to put aside our childish ways and mature in Christ by loving one another and committing to one another in covenant love for each other. And even when there are differences, we make that truth known. In the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love.